All right. So we were talking hypostatic union. Thank you for, um, uh, I'm sure you prayed last week. Thank you for uh, the feedback we got from the doctor with Mark um, was very positive. Uh, Those of you who don't know about this time, last year we were dealing with all kinds of kidney issues for our 17-year-old, at that time 16-year-old, and um, we were very worried about it, all kinds of stuff. And um, then we faced kind of the issues here with the, the medical establishment here was, was not always awesome. And, um, but all of that has been worked out. And then we went to, uh, to talk to a guy in Fort Worth and he ran a test six months ago and then ran a test again. And the test shows the exact same scores, which that's good news when you're talking kidney function. And so uh, your, your kidneys are supposed to operate 50-50 and his operate at 70-30, but that's okay. Like that's... Not, no, no, so nothing else needs to be done, and that's the answered prayer. That's what we wanted was nothing else needed to be done. So thank you for that, that we could go um, get that test done last week and, uh, and then jump back in. And I'm sure John did a great job. We're actually going to, John uh, talked about um, specific uh, way, way of engaging in prayer last Wednesday, if I remember correctly, that's what he was talking about. And we're actually going to do a little bit of that this next Sunday morning as, as part of our 21 days of kicking off um, prayer for the capital campaign conversations. And so we start, we always start there. We are not our own and nothing we have is ours. So that's where we go. So um, now back to this, talked about the hypostatic union. So picking up where we left off, we had kind of established and dug into and dealt with Jesus Christ experiencing life as a human being and how that is um, rational. There's nothing irrational. Um, It is mysterious, but there's nothing irrational about that. Um, it makes sense that that would be possible. Um, the, the gap between God and man is, is all just things that you do without. It's like an emptying picture. Um, how, how many of you can confess that you actually felt nervous when I pulled a gun? Like that you were like, okay, that makes me nervous. Even, even all this, this day and age, that used to be stuff you could do in a youth group like 20 years ago, like bring in a gun and it was a cool thing. I mean, heck, you could pretend to come in and arrest students and that was like, Oh, how many of you really would have given up your faith? Like the little stigs. No, you don't do that nowadays. Like that's, can't do any of that stuff. Um, A different world. Um, But uh, um, that concept, that picture. So as we've talked about it, the understanding that when he came to earth, though he was fully God, and though he took on the nature, the, the essence of being a human being and experiencing life as a man, Um, And that that's what he lived out while he was here. So he experienced things that under normal circumstances God would not experience, like being tired or being tempted or probably being sick or or things like that. Maybe being injured, hitting his hand with a a hammer. There's no reason to think those things did not happen to him during his lifetime. Um, And so in all of that, he was tempted in different times, but as the Bible teaches us, without sin. And one of the things that made me want to study that was the fact that, that we don't have to answer the question. That the question, could Jesus have sinned, or what would have happened if Jesus had sinned, is an academic question. We don't have to answer it because he didn't. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Like, what would God have done if Jesus had started to sin? What would that, I mean... We don't have to wonder at that because in obedience, perfect obedience to his Father, Jesus never did. And that's, that is worthy of honor and praise, that he would have lived a life never disobeying his Father. Now, now sin for us is very different than it was for Jesus. Jesus and Adam were moral free agents, meaning they would have to disobey um, in order to sin. We are not moral free agents. We are born on the wrong team. We are already rebels from the time we are conceived. 
um, uh, angry, selfish, murderous little beasts, as, as soon as we can act or think or be rational, we sin. And so in the midst of that, that's always there. That's, we are not moral free agents. We require us being saved from our sin. Um, children are not the tabula rasa, the blank slate. The, the fact that that ever hit any philosophy is absolutely unthinkable to me. I just cannot even, how anyone would describe a child as being uh, morally, even morally blank, much less morally positive. Do, I mean, do they do sweet and wonderful things? Sure, but um, that's not surprising. But the fact that, of course, they're not, they are liars from the moment before they can speak. Um, and so I think that's, that is significant. That's us. So the idea of living a sinless life would not even be an option for us. Um, even, even if we thought we could, maybe we can go through a period of life without intentionally transgressing. Um, so if you picture sin can be understood in two ways, and both are accurate. So one is there's a boundary, and when I cross that boundary, I am trespassing. I am transgressing. I am crossing something that is for, I am forbidden to cross. Sure, people can go through days, weeks, maybe months, or years of their lives without intentionally transgressing. I mean, hypothetically. Um, I'm not predicting that for any of us, but it is hypothetically would be possible that you would never say something that you shouldn't say. Now, of course, you have omission, which is you failed to say something you should have said, and we're all going to mess that one up no matter how holy we are. But here's the deal. Even that's not the correct full understanding of sin. The correct and full understanding of sin is not transgression, but is failure to achieve. Um, hamartia and chata, the, the, Greek, the Greek and Hebrew words, the main words for sin, is the failure to achieve, um, to fall short, to fail to reach. So that anything that falls short of the glory of God would be sin. So everything we do is infected by sin. We need a Savior. Even the way we pray is tainted by sin. The way we worship or teach or lead is tainted by this sin, this, at, at the, rebellion, the rebellious in us. Um, and then on top of that, we also experience what Paul calls the flesh, which is the weak part of us, the part that is needy and, and constantly wants to be comforted and patted on the head and made to feel better. And, and those are probably the seat, that's probably the seat partially of our emotions is that that's you know, where addictions set in. Is that we just want to stop hurting. We want to stop feeling anxious. We want to, and the flesh doesn't care what we do to feel better. And so the flesh is weak. It's prone to wander. Some people think of the flesh as evil. They may be right. I think of the flesh as, um, my understanding of it, as more just weak. It's kind of weak and pathetic and needy and all that. It is the part of us that is prone to wander off stupidly and foolishly. Um, so understand Jesus lived in the flesh with a propensity like us as humans potentially to, to want to feel good, even when he hurt. But he never chose sin in that. He never took the shortcut or the easy way out if that's not what God was calling him to. And that's, that's, that's amazing. The thought that, and that would be even harder for God, not less hard for God. Think of how constant the temptation to access his own divinity, to experience life as God, how, that, how constant that would have been. Um, instead of obeying the plan that, that the father, he and the Father had put in place with the Spirit in advance. Now, that's, that's Jesus Christ on earth. So he comes, he experiences life as a man, he does one very, very significant thing that God cannot do uh, or would not normally do under normal circumstances, and that is die. So he comes and authentically dies. 
exactly how the divine human essence plays out in his death, no one, no one knows for sure. Um, does the essence of God, is it capable of dying? I would say not, but he, wasn't, he had set aside the essence of God in some ways, even though it was still part of him, and that's somehow that allowed him to be killed, to give up his own life. Um, by the way, y'all remember years ago when the Passion of the Christ came out and everyone started arguing about who killed Jesus? That's got to be like the most insulting conversation for Jesus. In, that people sit around and go like, no, the Romans killed him, no, the Jews killed him. Even, even like the theologically kind of semi-accurate answer that Mel Gibson and others gave are like, no, no, I killed Jesus. Do you know that, that Mel Gibson used his own hand as the hammer hand, the hand that showed the hammer, so, because to show like, I'm the one who nailed him to the cross. Well, there's a theological truth to that. If, if any of us had managed to not sin, then maybe Jesus would not have had to go to the cross. We're not going to do that, but maybe. I don't know if that's true, but that's a possibility. The, the problem is, even that's not totally accurate. Um, no one took his life from him. I mean, he makes it very clear in John 10. I lay down my life. No one takes it from him. No one had the power or authority or anything like that to take Jesus' life from him. I mean, that's just laughable, the thought that someone could impose their will on him. Um, only God's will mattered to him. That's why he said in the garden, I, as a man, experience life as a man, I would like for God's wrath to pass from me, this cup to pass from me. But my will is not what matters, your will, the Father's will. So again, living perfectly out the Father's will is pretty amazing. So then he dies. Um, no one knows for certain what happened. We discussed this at the beginning of last semester um, so I won't go into it again. No one knows for certain what happened during the time that Jesus was dead. Um, there, the, at some point, it was added to the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell. That was not originally in it. Um, that's probably taken from the passage in Second Peter that we talked about, that, or First Peter that we talked about, that's not... We really don't know for sure what happened to him during that time. Um, it's apparently not, not terribly our business, or we would know. Um, and then he rose from the grave. God, God raised him from the dead. Um, again, fascinating concept for the God-man to be raised from the dead. But here's, here's where it gets a little interesting. When he was raised from the dead, was he raised from the dead fully God and fully man still? And different people have different opinions on that. But, but there is a pretty clear orthodox stance that I think is the biblical one. Um, somebody's whistling back there. Is that a song? Oh, that's, oh, sorry. I thought that was actually you whistling. I was like, that's really good. I was so impressed. That was awesome. So, so who gets the don't worry, be happy? Okay. Very fun. All right, so... Um, so... Let's look at some passages to discuss the, the state of Jesus experiencing life, um, what, how he's experiencing life, and more importantly, what essence does he carry now? Um, and so let's look at a couple. It is, it's not like there's a passage that says, like in a sentence, this is the way it is. But let's look at these to talk about this. So one is, we do know that Jesus still has a body. So he was raised bodily, not just spiritually, bodily. This is really important, actually. Jesus was raised in a body, in a new body. So let's look at, um, well, there you go. 
in Philippians 3.20, um, it is a spiritual body, but it is a, so it's, it's the new body, like we're going to get a new body. Um, it may even be that it is just like even similar to the body that we will have with some of the same characteristics. What matters is it is an imper- imperishable body, a body that no longer decays. Let's talk about that for a second because we are decaying. Um, the natural state of humans is dead. Um, if we just sit here and we don't do anything to postpone our own demise, we die pretty quickly. Um, within a few, if, if you count breathing among that, just a few minutes, but, um, but our bodies do that automatically. But if, even if we just said, you know, we're all just going to sit here and we're just going to sit here and no one's going to do anything and next week, you know, we'll just, we'll just pick up where we left off. Um, seven days is longer than the human body can go without water. Um, and so probably essentially none of us would make it to next week if we did not do things to postpone death. Um, every time we eat, every time we drink, every time we go to the bathroom, and every time we sleep, what we're doing is postponing death. Um, these bodies are in the process of trying to die, and we are trying to prevent them from doing it. Um, so, never thought about it that way, huh? Wednesday pick me up, huh? <laughs> exactly, yep. Um, and and it's, it is humorous. I know, it's, I know it's, it seems weird for me to say it because I'm not that old yet, but if, if, I mean, as you're getting older, isn't that just strange to, see, to, to start experiencing your body rebelling against you? Like, I remember when I was this guy's age thinking, why does it take adults so long to stand up? <laughs> I remember thinking how weird that was that it took them forever to stand up, and then they had to stand there for a second before they started walking. <laughs> I remember being like, that's so strange. And, and now that's me. Like, I am the, I stand up slowly, I get up, I make sure that I'm not like, you know, my, I don't have a head rush thing happening or whatever. It is such a weird experience to, to have our bodies in the process of decaying. And, but it is a truth. Our bodies are decaying. We will eventually be given a body that doesn't do that. That the, the rules of entropy, that the, the laws of the passage of time, physics from a physics perspective, don't apply. That, that we don't keep getting worse. That's an amazing thought. Um, exactly what the bodies look like. We don't know exactly what those type of details. We don't have any idea. But think about when we see Jesus Christ fully glorified, for example, on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see him in, in being expressed in his glory. He has not fully gotten his new body yet. Apparently that didn't happen on the mountain. But there's a, a picture of that that the people are able to get, that Peter, James, and John are able to get. We have that really strange thing. Do you remember when Jesus comes back and Mary Magdalene is there in the garden and he says, don't, don't touch me yet because I have not yet gone to the Father? No one has any idea what's going on there for sure. But it may be that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, not yet being given his new body. And so that's, that's not something you would want to touch or handle exactly what... What exactly would that look like? We don't know. But we see Jesus later when he's walking on the road to Emmaus, when he's by the Sea of Galilee, when he's in the upper room, and it's different. But what, do you, what, do you, what stands out? What does always the case when they see Jesus in his bodily form, what stands out about it? 
Okay? Sometimes they recognize him, sometimes they don't, right? Like on the road to Emmaus, they're clueless until he speaks their names, right? The scars are there. Now, that's an amazing concept that in this new body, apparently the scars of his martyrdom are something that are left on it. So, would like random scars? So, if he cut his hand on a nail when he was six, like would that scar still be there? I don't know. But the, but the scars of his ministry are there like a badge of honor. Um, that there's, that there's his hand, that the wounds are in his hands and in his side to prove that he didn't just, he wasn't just risen spiritually, but risen physically. And that's the body that ascends. So there's no reason for us to think that somewhere between here and ascending into heaven, that body went away. The assumption is, and I think rightfully so, we'll look at a couple of passages, is that Jesus Christ still has a body. God the Father does not. He can have a physical representation, certainly, and He periodically does. He can have a physical presence, but He is spirit, purely spirit. Therefore, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. But he is purely spirit. Jesus Christ, though, even now, from the time he rose, has a body that still bears the scars. Can you grab for me um, Colossians 2, 9? For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, that's a, that's a tough concept. The fullness of what it means to be God. And this is written decades later and is in the present tense. That the, the fullness, the essence of God exists within, a, dwells bodily in the body that he took with him when he ascended. That's an amazing concept. So the idea that Jesus Christ certainly, what should not be open to debate is whether Jesus Christ still has a body. Um, Jesus is, has that. Now, I will tell you, we won't, we won't have to get off on this, my personal theo theological view, and this is not at all established um, from an orthodox perspective, is that humans require a body. Um, different people have very different opinions on that, and I could so easily be wrong about this, but and that's my personal opinion, is that human existence requires a body. Um, and so we are given, that's why we get a new body. Otherwise, why would we bother to have a new body in eternity? That doesn't, why wouldn't we just be floating spirits with wings and harps and stuff? Why do we still have a, and I think that's why. The, the human experience, part of the essence of what it means to be human is to have a body. Now again, you can automatically, we talked uh, in the fall about, that, that'll give you a hint as to where I stand on the whole, do you immediately go to a holding tank paradise when you die until you get a new body, or do you wait with the current body until the resurrection, and that would tell you where I lean towards. But, um, but again, I'm fine being wrong about that. Um, a, good friend, a good friend here in town, Eric Barton, who's the pastor at Bethel's downtown campus, totally disagrees with me on this. And so um, he's probably right. He's smarter than I am. But uh, it's, a good, it's still a good conversation. Let's look at a couple of things interesting. How about Acts 17, 30 and 31? Times of ignorance, I hope this is right. At the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Maybe this is right. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world and righteousness by man. Oh, yes, that's, there's the key. He will judge the world and righteousness. How? By a man. That's a pretty 
good case for the fact that Jesus Christ is still man. Unless, unless the author here is referenced as trying to say someone who used to be a man, which is clearly not what it says, then this is a pretty strong case for the idea that Jesus Christ is still man. Potentially fully man. Um, again, that wouldn't be strange. During the 40 days that he appeared, he did human things. He walked, he ate, he sat, and when he ascended, he took his body with him. He didn't leave the body in the tomb, nor did he leave the body behind when he ascended. How about um, 1 Timothy 2.5? There's one God and there is one mediator between God and man the man, Jesus Christ. This is one of the great theological implications of Jesus still being man. So if you were raised like I was to the belief that the fact that God is three and one is some academic stuff that's just out there, that it has no real application, it's just interesting trivia about God, um, it actually turns out that's not true at all. Um, there's some things that, that God's characteristics, like being loving, being sacrificial, being merciful, those require someone other than yourself. Um, if, you, if, the only, if the only love you have is yourself, it's hard to, to call that disinterested or charitable. Certainly not sacrificial. And if these are traits of God's that transcend time, God has always been these things. And so it's important that there's more than one person in the Godhead um, so that there is someone for him to love, someone for him to sacrifice for, someone for him to um, take care of and have mercy on and all that kind of stuff. And that is the other persons of the Trinity. Uh, this is significant in the same way. This is an application of the theological concept that Jesus Christ is still man. And that is that that gives him a role as a mediator. So a mediator is someone who represents both sides to each other side. Someone who kind of stands in the middle representing both. And so Jesus Christ is able to represent God to us, to translate God to us from an experiential sense. Why? Why can he tell, why can he communicate well to us about God? Because he is God, right? And he communicates to the Godhead in regards experientially to what it is to be a man. And why? Because he is a man. This is pretty significant and awfully special. I mean, it's pretty, pretty significant that God... This is one of the applications of Jesus Christ coming and experiencing life as a man. Do you understand, and this, this is going to sound strange to you, but that though God knows everything and always has known everything, there's a difference between gnosis knowledge and experiential knowledge. And there is a difference even for God. So God will apparently never experience sinning. <laughs> Yay, we have one up on him, right? Um, there's one thing we, we, we all get to experience that God has not experienced. Um, but, that's, but notice, but God has experienced in other, every other way what it is to be human. That's an amazing advantage for him, an amazing advantage for us. That it's not just a, so to speak, head knowledge that God has about humanity. It is experiential knowledge. He's been there and done that, so to speak, right? And so that's, that's a pretty fascinating picture to consider the implications of Jesus Christ 
as a mediator still now. Um, okay, so the orthodox, meaning the, the common understood view among Christianity, is, that, is this one, that Jesus Christ is still fully man and fully God. Veros homos, veros deos, truly God, truly man. Um, that's, that that is still the case. Now, I will tell you, it's a little tougher um, logically than the other way. See if you can follow me on this. Um, it's easier to imagine Jesus Christ emptying himself in order to, ex- though being God, to experience life as a man. What's harder for us to fathom is the fact that he is man experiencing life as God. That's tougher. Because it's hard to understand how you get to be a man and experience life as a God. Apparently it's possible, and it's unique, so we're not going to have any analogy for it. But in my mind, for some of you, you may be like, yeah, I don't, I don't get that. But in my mind, that's harder. I can't just pull out a gun and pull the bullets out of it to show you how, how the gun experiences what it is to be God and yet not be, what it is to be a gun that's empty but still be not empty. Like I, that's, that's harder for me to wrap my brain around. There are people who've done a lot of work on it. It is definitely tougher philosophically. Um, but apparently it's possible to experience life as God. Maybe it's essentially he has emptied himself now of what it means to be man, just in the same way he emptied himself of what it meant to be God. But now he's emptying himself to things like ignorance and weakness, um, which is a lot funner to empty yourself of, I assume. Um, but but th- maybe that's simple, but um, that's a little tougher. So this has been, this has been the hypostatic union any, what, what questions do you have, if any, about um, all of these? Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man. Yes, great. Okay, who do you pray to? Great question. Um, so here's what we have. We do have... Um, we have So the Holy Spirit speaks for us. There, prayer has a cool dynamic. If you pick and choose verses, which is a terrible way to study Scripture, but if you pick and choose verses like this, you can kind of create this weird... So we pray, the Spirit groans for us, interprets for us, because we don't know what we're praying for. It, you kind of get this image, and none of this, none of this is actually how it is experienced because God is omnipotent and omnipresent and is not in competition with himself or anything else. But you can almost create this picture of like, we pray, and the Spirit goes like, no, 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 not what he said. No, 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 listen. listen not, not. I know that's what he was praying, but let me, let me, here's what he really needs and really wants. Like, let me help you. So he groans for us. He like interprets. And so we say dumb things, and he interprets better stuff. It's um, one of my favorites. So I heard Jimmy Carter speak a few decades ago, and he was brilliant on stage. I loved his speaking skill. But he started the whole speech with this. He said, um, he said I was in Japan not long ago, and he said, I, there was a joke. I wanted to start my speech with a joke. And, and he said, so I was a little worried, would it translate cross-culturally, but I decided to try it. And he said, so I told this joke, and he said, even as I'm telling it, I'm like, this is, this is not going to work. It's just... He's like, I finished the joke, and the interpreter spoke, and the whole audience just roared. Like, he said they were just falling out of their chairs laughing. He's like, wow, that was awesome. And then, and then he goes, and it just really lit his fire, and he says, one of my best speeches ever. And afterwards, I said to the translator, I was like, I, I really was worried that wouldn't translate. I'm so glad it did. And the translator said, well, to be honest, Mr. President, I told them, the president has just told a long, rambling joke that you won't understand, so everyone laugh." Um, which, of course, they did. They all roared and roared in laughter. 
that's exactly how I picture it, that I'm like saying one thing and the Spirit's like, okay, so what he's meaning to ask is this. But then we have, so then we have Jesus who then mediates. And Jesus sits down with the Father. Again, this is wrong. But like, like he's negotiating on our behalf, almost. Like that he's like, well, you know what? Chris really probably does need this, and we probably ought to back off a little on this. And again, this all falls apart because it makes it seem like they're in competition with each other. And it also creates the totally false picture of like, that God the Father is robo-God kind of out to get me, and Jesus is the nicer one, and the Spirit's even nice. Like, that's totally inaccurate. Um, the fact, that's heresy. Um, but, but there's an image that the Spirit groans, and Jesus mediates, and the Father answers, gives good gifts. And so you can see this kind of interesting dynamic with prayer. Jesus always prays to the Father. Um, he tells us to pray in His name. Um, there's a lot more detail with this. I actually have an article on my website about prayer. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. I'm very honest in my article about prayer, about how hard prayer is for me in some ways, especially logically. Um, so if, if that kind of thing like crushes you to know your pastor struggles with something like that, like don't, don't read it. But, um, but it's, it's, as, I'm, as I talk through, like here are the guidelines. Like Jesus says to pray in his name and to enter boldly into the throne room. And, and we have these, these passages of Scripture um, and then, and then this, you know, the, the idea that we do that and that we pray to the father because when they asked Jesus, how do I pray? He said, our father. So I'm follow that. Now there are places in the new Testament letters where Jesus has spoken directly to in prayer. So it's not like that's wrong. God, the God is God. You're not in error to pray to the Holy spirit. Although we don't see an example of that scripturally, that's, that's, I, don't, I don't see how that could be considered error. Um, and even what I just described, even if you pray to the Father, it is via the Spirit and the Son. And so it's not like they're not in the thing as well. You will notice when I, when I pray, I pretty much universally pray to the Father. I address the Father because that's what Jesus did and said, this is how you pray. I don't think if someone says, praise to Jesus, I don't think that's like, I'm sorry, I would never correct them or something like, no, stop. Like that's, there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. I just follow the example that Jesus gave with that. I typically pray in Jesus' name, but I, you also, if you notice, I also will typically pray through the power of the Spirit and according to God's will. Um, and that's just, I'm following the example of Peter and Paul in the beginning of their letters when they do that. Um, when the Apostle Peter in First Peter um, references those who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ. And so I kind of try to follow that model when I pray as well, referencing the triune God. Um, but it's a great question. Thank you for asking that. The who do we pray to? Um, I, I am not a big fan of, though I am, again, I'm not one of those people who's a big fan of praying to other spirits. And here's what I mean. I don't mean just like praying to saints and stuff. I, 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 my main reason for that is I think if, we, if, if, if the saints can hear us when we pray, they would think it's very silly for us to pray to them. We don't, we don't need mediators between us and God the Father. Um, I, 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 my assumption is they can't hear us anyway. That, that the saints are deaf when it comes to prayer. It's not like we... I, I really believe that they would be just unaware of it. Um, I don't know why they would theologically be able to. I know in the Roman Catholic world that is taught to do, but that's, that's, that has to do with mediation and merit, and we have a mediator in Jesus Christ. We don't need a whole bunch of others. I, I don't, I've, I've never fully understood 
where that got off track, to be perfectly honest. Um, but I'm talking about when like, people say, like, when they speak directly to Satan or when they like, hey, spirit of such and such. I don't know that that's wrong. I, I, I just don't see it biblically done in a prayerful way. Um, I mean, yeah, if you run into a demon-possessed person, you might speak to the demon, but I've not experienced that. But that's, I see that sometimes I'm like, I, I still see God as being the one with the power. So I'm going to ask God to step in here, not me step in here. So that's my, but as, as long as you're praying to the triune God, I think you're on good footing. Um, I just follow because I'm simple that way. They said, how do we pray? He said, my, our Father. So that's usually how I start. Um, great question. Any others? I have read The Shack. I heard, I saw the preview for the movie coming out. So, The Shack, anybody familiar? Okay, so The Shack, if you don't know, for those of you who do know, um, I consider the book like The Shack and even Jesus Calling and stuff like that, those are gutsy. At, at best, they're gutsy. To put words in God's mouth that aren't straight scripture is just scares the, I quite literally almost mean the bejesus out of me. Like that's a, like that is a, that I would not be willing to do that. I'm, I am nervous doing that like when I'm trying to retell a biblical story and I, and I put it in a shorthand or in a, that makes me nervous to, even though I'm citing it or paraphrasing it. The thought of creating brand new words to put in God's mouth, I just, I mean, I just don't know that I have what that takes. Maybe that's just for, I like the creativity, but I, I just, I have such a heart. I'm like, I'm going to answer for that. Like, I'm going to go to God, and God was like, I would never have said that. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I just, that just doesn't strike me as something I want to have. That book in particular, as a therapist, there's three or four things in there that struck me as phenomenally offensive because it came across as so hard-hearted of God to say certain things in that book. Now, again, I'm not opposed to the book philosophically, I just, um, uh, I will tell you, all of my clients who experience sexual abuse, they, uh, who have read it, there is one line in it that every single one of them fixated on. And when I read it, I read that line and was like, every single one of my abuse clients is going to fixate on God saying that I was with her when she was being raped with a child. I was with her the whole time, and she was very, you'll be proud to know she was very strong. I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing it. And not in, that that's necessary. I don't know how inaccurate or accurate that would be. The thought that God would not have the therapeutic insight to know not to say that to a dad. That's the part to me that's like, okay, God's got to be a better therapist than I am, and I would know not to say that. Like, under no conditions would that be okay to say it that way and say it in that. And so, again... It's not something I've ever taken a stance against, even being this critical. Some people have been hugely blessed by it and encouraged by it, and that's, if that's the case, blessings on you. Um, I hope they clean some of the... It felt rough around the edges to me in the book, like it needed more editing. I hope they clean that up in the movie. I, what's funny is I didn't mind the presentation of God the Father being presented as uh, an elderly African-American lady. Like... I was like, yeah, if he's going to take a physical form, that makes as good a sense as anything else. I mean, that's, I can see that. Like, that didn't, what's, that was what bugged some of my friends. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I mean, why not? Like, um, there's some great comfort in that. I could see that being the case. But um, it is interesting that it is, it was an intriguing read. 
Uh, I felt the same way with Taylor Caldwell wrote a book years ago called Dialogues with the Devil, where she, she has the Archangel Michael and Devil communicating via letters. Um, that one had the same sort of feel, the Jesus Calling book that we even have given away here that has great value to a lot of people. Again, when you're putting words in God's mouth and you can't put a scriptural reference at the end of it, I think you're, I don't know, playing with fire seems too strong. Walking on thin ice seems too strong, but gutsy is what I say. Did you have a follow-up? What, like, was there... Um, Yeah, it's it's a it's a yeah fascinating. He attempts to paint the picture of what the Trinity right. looks like, how you know, how that sort of operates. Yeah, you'd see this interaction and the operate. Yep, and another. But if you've ever read um, Madeline Engel's first book, Wrinkle in Time, she is doing the same thing with Mrs. Who, Mrs. Witch, and Mrs. What. Those are the triune. Those are the triune God interacting with each other. Um, and they do that. She very much so presents them that way. They have a, a very distinct roles within their relationship. Okay, so you mean like Jesus calling? Okay, here's what I would tell you we must read anything through the lens of wisdom and scripture. Um, and and critic, that means critically. If it's a human saying it, then it has to be taken critically. With Scripture, what we have to take critically is our ability to understand it. So we, we still study Scripture critically, not because we're criticizing Scripture, but because we have to evaluate our ability to follow what it's saying, to understand what's going on in it. And we don't sometimes. I mean, there was a few hundred years when people were being killed for saying that the earth rotated around the sun. Because clearly the Bible teaches that the earth is the center of the universe and everything rotates around it. Well, the Bible obviously doesn't say that. But their interpretation of it was wrong. So anytime we learn something that seems to come in contradiction with our understanding of Scripture, our understanding of at least one of them must be wrong. Maybe both, but at least one must be wrong. Um, it's either understanding of science or psychology or whatever, or Scripture. Scripture is not going to be wrong. Our understanding of Scripture, though, can be wildly wrong. Uh, I just offered to, to uh, Steve DeMint and Rod Fletcher to come teach um, the theology of race um, at Brook Hill to some teachers or students or whatever. Um, I taught that at the Mentoring Alliance, which is the Boys and Girls Club team. They put together all those different... And there's about 25 of them on staff, all different ethnic backgrounds. And when I taught what the Bible actually teaches, the theology of race, of ethnicity... They were just floored. Um, one of the African-American men afterwards said, um, when I said, well, give me some feedback on this, and one of him said, one of the African-American men said, I will be honest in saying, though I am a Christian, I always thought Christianity was the white man's religion and that I was kind of the unwanted stepchild who they were nice enough to let me be a part of their white religion. And I was like, wow. I mean, that is... That is so inaccurate understanding of the... Um, if, if anything, the argument would be that the white, what we call white, and there's not, there's not by the way, there's not multiple races of humans. That's a total misnomer. What a, what a ridiculous... Anyway, um, there's different ethnicities, but not different races. Um, the, uh, you could make a much stronger argument that the, the, what we now call the white or Caucasian race 
was the last of the ethnicities to grasp the gospel. Um, not the first. Um, yeah, we... Anyway, I've told you all about the Jesus down in the, the nativity. Yes? You go into the... Um, so those of you who are going to Israel may get to see this. Sometimes the line is too long and we're not willing to do it. But you go to Bethlehem and you go to the church of nativity... Um, which has been there a long time, since like 8,300. It's one of the oldest churches there. Um, it stood, this, you'll think this is cool, the church of nativity still stands. The Muslims came in and destroyed every church um, in the 600s. Uh, every single church all over Israel in the 600s, except in the church of nativity. Anybody, you maybe have been there. Anybody know why? The wise men. There's a painting on the wall that shows baby Jesus and three wise men who are obviously Muslim. <laughs> They're not. Islam did not come into existence until 600 years later. But, but they look Arab. And so the Muslims thought that someone had painted the Muslims. And so they weren't going to tear down a church that showed Muslims being at Jesus' birth. So they didn't. Isn't that amazing? So it's the only one of the ancient ones still there. Um, uh, anyway, you go and you go down these little stairs behind the altar and everything. And there's these weird caves and there's a silver star about this big on the ground, and that's where Jesus was born. Like, right, right here. I'm dubious, I will tell you. I'm <laughs> right there. Seems not, I don't think they know that. Um, the church, very good possibility that somewhere in the vicinity of that church may have been where the original manger lay at some point. I mean, it wasn't that big a town. Um, but you go down there, and there's paintings of baby Jesus all over the walls. And in, in every one of them, baby Jesus is beautifully what? Red-headed. <laughs> he is as European with glowing red hair in every shot. I have pictures of me standing in front of him being like, uh-huh, just uh, see, it, uh-huh, you knew this was true. Anyway, I love it. Every one of them, he's red-headed in it. So, no, he wasn't. He was Jewish. There are not a lot of Jewish redheads. Um, anyway, that, that's, a, that's a rare combo. Um, anyway, he was Jewish, Semitic, more like the modern-day Arab than like the modern-day American. Um, anyway, that's gonna, so that's always fun to talk about. I have no idea why I'm talking about this. Does anybody have any clue? What was the question that someone asked? What's that? Jesus calling. Wow, I got all the way to there for Jesus calling. Dr. Digression. That's, my dad was called Dr. Digression. I come by it naturally. Um, so what I would say is with all of it, wow, how did I do that? I'd be, I've got to go back and listen to that, that rabbit, one rabbit after another. Jeez. Um, uh, don't try. Don't, some of you are trying to, fake, to follow the path. Don't bother. It's, it's, it's delusional. Um, the, um, so what I would say with any of them is, including that one, is I'm, I, I'm now remembering the, gospel, the, the race thing, that we misinterpret Scripture to say things it doesn't say. Um, but when you're, especially when you're reading someone else's opinion, you, you never treat it as gospel. You never treat it as scriptural. Can the Spirit work through that? Of course the Spirit can work through that. Of course the Spirit can speak to us through that. But we read it critically knowing, this is just, a few, just like we read a commentary or any other book, that Jesus' calling is not the divinely inspired words of Jesus Christ speaking. The Holy Spirit may use those words to inspire us. That happens constantly through reading truth 
Um, but we always have to be wary um, of that. That's, I think that's important that we recognize that. So, yes, ma'am. Right. I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure at the beginning in the introduction, she references the reminder, this is not Scripture. Um, it, is, it is a work of fiction, even though it is, I think, probably largely accurate. It is still fictional. Um, that's why we have to be sophisticated, and we talked about that before, sophisticated even when we're students of Scripture. I mean, when the Apostle Paul brought to the Bereans the gospel, they didn't buy it. What they did is they studied, they, took, they went home, and they found their copies of what they had, and they compared everything that the Apostle Paul had said to what Scripture said, and they came back the next day and was like, all right, you can keep talking. Um, and, and they are honored scripturally. That's totally appropriate um, for us to do that. That's one of the things that sets Christianity apart from a lot of the other religions is we are encouraged to question. We're encouraged. Um, doubt's too strong a word not to doubt God, but to doubt one another. Sure. Um, no one else gets to speak for God but God. Um, great questions. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a great. So, what? What? In other words, what's the? How does it? What does it affect when a non-believer prays? Um, so, here's what I would say. I think we have to follow an analogy because we don't have a clear scriptural like here's this and here's this. We know that the righteous acts of a non-believer are like filthy rags to God, right? I mean, it's when when you are a non when you're not following Jesus Christ and you try to do morally right things. All that is is pride, to think that you can do that on your own. There's nothing beautiful about that. Um, that being said, I believe that God, because we are created in God's image and God loves everybody, I think it would, the assumption is God would hear all prayer. Hear all prayer. I think the idea that he was going to respond differently to someone who is a child versus someone who is a creation also makes sense. I don't think the non-believer can enter boldly into his throne like we can. Um, I use that, I know it's an analogy and so it kind of falls apart, but I mean, if, if I'm up teaching or when John's up singing, if, if a kid runs up on stage and it's just some random kid out of the audience, they will probably get a different response than if it's one of our children. Um, now, maybe that falls apart because we love all the kids who are here, but there's a sense in which there's a freedom that our children have with us. And I think that's the case. Um, it's kind of a weird sense in it. Obviously, God has the authority and the power and the right to answer the prayer of a non-believer. And I'm sure he does all the time. Um, but I still think there, because of the relationship, there's a distinction in regards to the, their ability or even, in a sense, their right to come to him in prayer. He may, in his mercy, listen to their prayer. But there's a sense of, I don't want to use the word obligation, but I keep coming back to it. Like, he has obliged himself to us who are his children. I will listen and give good gifts. He gives good gifts to non-believers too. It rains on the just and the unjust. Um, but, but I would say the prayer that, the, the only prayer that, which I, I think we would agree with, the only prayer that, wow, this still sounds wrong matters for the non-believer is the prayer of salvation. That's the one he has guaranteed to hear and respond to 100% of the time. 
I guess if a non-believer prays, it's just at his whim on how to respond. We pray in Jesus' name because we are part of the family, and God has made certain promises. You know, that's, that's the way I would say it. God has made certain promises to those of us who are his children that he has not made to those who are not. I think that would be the, the best way for me to answer that. Um, but clearly he... I mean, so one of the theories... Yeah, have you ever heard this? Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this, and I don't know what to even do with this. When I studied world religions for the first time, I was really weirded out a little bit by, you, you know what, Taoism, T-A-O-I-S-M, Taoism, the one that shows the yin-yang, it's an oriental religion. Um, can't say it anymore, Asian religion. It's an oriental religion, though. That, actually, we do need to say it that way. Um, uh, do you know what Tao means? This is interesting to me. The Tao Te Ching is their holy book. Um, Tao means way. It's, it's the word for the way. Um, think about, so Buddhists meditate for what? When Buddhists are, okay, what, what do they call that? They meditate for enlightenment. It's actually the language that, that the Buddha used, enlightenment. Um, to be made aware. Buddha means awake. To go from sleeping to wakefulness is what they mean. Um, and then, and then when you think about what other world religions claim, what world religions claim to be seeking, it always seems to fall into the heading of either way, truth, light, or life. And so I had this, years and years ago, I had this image in my mind of, um, and this is not biblical, by the way, not, not biblical. But I had this image in my mind of all of these people who had in an effort to worship God, had studied all these different things. And I had this image of this sea of people all standing in a room. I, I still picture my middle, middle school assembly room where we all gathered in the morning before we went to class. So that's the best my imagination has. So the whole world is sitting at TJR, and they're, and they're sitting there just waiting, and Jesus kind of enters a back door singing and wanders through the crowd and exits out the other door. And, and the image I had, again, not biblical, so don't, I'm not teaching this pulpit-wise, but the image I had years ago was of all these people, the ones who have legitimately been seeking him all of their lives, seeing him and going, well, there's the way, or there's the truth, and following him out. Because that's what they've been looking for all their life, and they finally have it. And the ones who haven't, really, they've just been doing religiosity, not recognizing him as he walked through that Jesus' proclamation of being the way and the truth and the life seems so potent from a world religion perspective. Now, obviously, that's, I'm just making something up there. I should write a book. Um, the, uh, sheep, yeah, that's, well, that's exactly the image of like Jesus singing and my sheep know the sound of my voice and I have sheep from pastures that you know nothing about, right? That's whole, anyway, that just seems to me, I think he was talking about Gentiles there, but I just had this image. It struck me when I was studying world religions and going, wait, Taoism seeks for the way. And I mean, these seem to be, this is a non-Christian professor doing this, and he keeps talking about these four things, way, truth, life, and light, about all the world religions. And I'm like, so in other words, what you're telling me is they're looking for Jesus. That's what you're telling me is that they want Jesus, and that's what they're not finding. And so anyway, it's interesting to me. Sorry. Yes, sir. Yes. How much of, you know, when, like, so when we pray to God, when we pray in Jesus' name, mm -hmm. with him being
being our how much of that is for us to remind us yes right this is where we are in this cosmic story so the question is us praying especially in regards to Jesus name and things like that how much of that is for us um this that's a a long conversation oh no it makes total sense listen a lot of people have explain, explained the mechanics of prayer by saying prayer is for us, not God. That's the very clever, and there is a truth to it. It just doesn't fit Scripture. I'm going to talk this Sunday about the two main parables on prayer that Jesus teaches. Not, I'm not talking about the teaching on prayer, the parables on prayer. Anybody know what they are? One is called the parable of the unrighteous judge, right? Or the relentless widow is sometimes what it's called. What is that prayer about? What is that parable about? She keeps bugging this guy. I mean, that's that's the other one is about a man who goes and asks his neighbor for three loaves of bread in the middle of the night. And in the parable, Jesus says, "Though he might not be willing to give you the loaves, but for your brashness—in other words, the fact that you knock on his door at two in the morning—he gives you the loaves." Both of the prayers, both of these parables, are about. Bugging God. They're both, that's the picture, is like that we should be praying and continuing to pray. And the reason, and Jesus is saying, and don't quit. Why? Well, maybe you'll get what you want if you keep asking. I mean, that is the, now he goes on to say, by the way, the second half of each of, I don't, I'm giving away too much of my sermon. Forget you heard this. But the re, then he goes on to say like, but here's the deal. You're evil and you will do stuff. This guy was unrighteous and he will do good things. How much more will a good God? And so, Part of why we ask certainly is for us. But apparently, even the, that's why I'm telling you I'm confused about prayer. The mechanics of prayer make no sense to me. Well, because we have to be real careful not to turn that into sort of, I guess, the prosperity gospel. Right. We don't. It's because prayer, in the end, the answer to prayer isn't about me, right? And so, otherwise, I just need a meditative feeling is, accomplishes the same thing. And so, to say, I literally, in relationship, go to God and honestly ask for what I want, and honestly proclaim to him who I think he is. And I mean, all those things really are there, all under the heading of, don't use tons of words because God knows what you're going to ask before you ask. Which I'm like, I just, the mechanics of that boggles my mind. So there's a relationship aspect to all of that that is beyond us. It's kind of like God resting. God who does not sleep, nor does he slumber, and yet he tells us, it tells us in Deuteronomy, he, he rested and was refreshed. So there's a concept of resting that transcends, that transcends being tired. There's an aspect of prayer that transcends the mechanics of prayer. And it is beyond us. So in the end, I end up saying, well, I pray because I've been told to pray. I mean, that's, why would I not, I guess? I don't need a reason to pray. I need a reason not to pray. But the mechanics of it are beyond me. That's one of those I'm interested to see someday. I pray in faith. I don't feel like a lot of times I believe in faith because I don't have to. That like I'm using faith incorrectly here, but I don't require any blind faith for me to believe. The account, the account of God, that there is a God in the account of Jesus Christ to me make perfect sense. Um, very, almost nothing else does. Like I, I, It makes total sense to me. I can see logically and rationally why that's the truth. Why God wants me to pray I cannot wrap my brain around that, but he does, so I do. Um, and it matters. That's, and apparently it changes things. And then sometimes I, it doesn't do what I want it to do. 
So it's a, it's a tough one. Great questions. Okay, so here's what we'll do next time. Um, uh, we will pick up next time because I know it's such an issue that we are facing. I want to talk about from a cultural and biblical perspective what we're dealing with in regards to issues of sexuality um, in America. I, want, I don't want any of us to be unwise about that conversation. Even when everyone else is, I want us to be a stabilizing factor in regards to that conversation. So I'm going to pick that up uh, next time. So let me pray and we'll be done. Don't hesitate, by the way, if you want to send questions We've got a few more weeks before we go to uh, men's Bible study and women's Bible study, which will happen after spring break. So that's not that long away, by the way. Father, um, uh, I thank you for these men and women, and I thank you that you're sending so many children here that we have to build a building to effectively continue to minister to them. Um, I pray you will teach us the process of investing wisely in eternity through that. Um, it is such a gift that we, we don't even really understand that your spirit groans for us, that your son um, mediates and intercedes for us, um, that you are a loving father who loves to give good gifts. Um, I, I don't know that our primitive minds can fully grasp how grateful we should be for all of that. Um, we just are. Uh, we will... We will content ourselves with being grateful for you being God, and we aren't. Um, I pray you would provide as you see fit, that you would move us in your spirit to provide for us in our families, in our homes, um, in our church, um, with the ministers to step up and accomplish the ministry in our weakness and frailty, um, to provide the finances in our poverty um, and appreciation for the truth of our wealth, that we, you would provide the commitment amidst our flesh. Um, Father, thank you that your son has come to save us. And I pray that if anybody here does not know your son, has never had the opportunity or never taken the opportunity to accept the free gift of grace that your son offers, I pray that tonight will be the night of salvation. Thank you for all of this in his magnificent name. Amen.